All right, church, welcome back. As I mentioned, my name is John, one of the pastors here. Excited to have you with us as we jump into the Bible. Stand to your feet wherever you're watching from, production team and wherever you're watching online as we get ready to read and honor God's word. Listen, I'm excited. Christmas Eve, Eve, Western High School, December 23rd. I hope you got your digital invite cards. Go ahead and pass those out. Invite a friend that you think would enjoy a great service and a chance to encounter a God who loves them very, very much. We're in the midst of this series called The Mothers of the Messiah. Everybody say it with me. The Mothers of the Messiah. There was like two people in the room that said it. So I'm feeling great right now. It's awesome. I'm going to imagine all you said it, so I feel better. Um, Mothers of the Messiah, Matthew chapter 1. Turn in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible or scroll in your Bibles, I should probably say we've got it up on the screen for your viewing enjoyment. If you're ready, say preach preacher. There we go. All right. Matthew 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. We talked about her last week. If you missed it, check it out, but later. Like, keep, keep tracking with me. Okay. Uh, Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. It's not just for dinner anymore, in case you thought the dad jokes would stop with that video. You just got to be careful. If you give me a limited script, I'll figure out stuff to add into the videos. Anyways, um, Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. I talked about her last week as well. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, which is who we're going to be talking about this morning. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. Would you join me as we pray, Jesus, help. Amen. You can grab your seat wherever you're watching from. Gave you a little calisthenic exercise. You're welcome. This Christmas season, the sermon series is coming from where, from where all of your favorites, I'm sure, and greatest hits come from, the genealogies. That's right, the genealogies, what we just read, the begats and the fathers and the sons and all of the things that you typically skip over in your Bible reading plan is where we are finding our Christmas sermon series. Here is why. As we move closer to the celebration of Jesus, the Savior of the world, coming down and impacting humanity for all time, I could not help but, but wrestle with the unique way that Matthew, in his account of the Gospels, this true account of what Jesus did and said, the way Matthew celebrates Jesus and his coming. He, he does this in the genealogies. Now, by means of recap, the, the genealogies are basically, uh, in the ancient world, uh, how many of you are familiar with resumes? How many of you have a resume? Okay, ho hopefully you do. In the ancient world, a genealogy was sort of an ancient version of a resume. Right in the, in the genealogies, you would sort of flex. In the genealogies, you would let people know your pedigree. In a genealogy, you would let people know who you are based off of your relations and your relationships. And so in this genealogy, the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, we're given a very unique vantage point. See, most of the genealogies in the ancient world especially were largely patriarchal, meaning it was a whole bunch of men and almost no women typically no women. It was the father of this, the father of that. That's because in the ancient world, it was largely men and sons that would have been the source of livelihood in the ancient world. Now, we get this genealogy, which is largely tracking most of the biblical genealogies actually follow the same format. It's mostly men. And then we have this one. And we've got 40 plus generations of men. And then as you notice, we've got these five women specifically listed in the genealogy. The question is why? Why would God put this in his ancient resume? You might be saying, because God loves women. 
Amen. If you're with a woman right now, you can turn to her and say, God loves you, because that's true. We know in the scriptures, in fact, the way God instructed his people to honor and venerate women was actually wildly uncommon in the ancient world. The people of God were fundamentally different because God so loved the world and God so loves women. Amen. But if that was all God was inspiring, the Holy Spirit was inspiring Matthew to do, then why not have all the women in the genealogy? If it's just about honoring and venerating women in general, why not have all of the women listed? But that's not what happens. It's only five. Why these five? Remember, God is not haphazard with words. He's not, oh, I, I, I just forgot. God is doing something and saying something purposeful and intentional. And this morning, or whenever you're watching this later on demand, I want to dialogue on the question of why Ruth? Everybody say, why Ruth? Why Ruth? My premise this morning is that through the genealogy of Jesus here in Matthew chapter 1, God is revealing something about himself. In his ancient resume, God is revealing something about his character, about what it means to be in relationship with him, what it means to be in his family. Are you ready to dive in? All right, here we go. Production team's ready. I hope you're ready. Here's a big idea. If you're taking notes, I'd encourage you to jot this down or type this down. Here it is. God is a redeemer, and there is no story too broken that he can't redeem. I'm going to say that one again because it is true. And if we can grasp the full ramifications of it, it's life-changing. God is a redeemer, and there is no story too broken that he can't redeem. All right, so this next mother of the Messiah that we're introduced to here in the genealogy of Jesus is Ruth. Now, can anyone guess where Ruth's story comes from? The book of, come on, all you Bible scholars out there, the book of Ruth is where Ruth's story comes from. I encourage you to read it just like I did last week. I encourage you to read the book of Ruth over this next few days. You might have a break from the holidays and in between your college football watching, although I told my mom I wouldn't talk about football, but you know, every good and perfect gift comes from God. Um, in the midst, in, in your breaks here, Ruth is short. It's four chapters long. You can read the whole thing, but let me tell the story so we're all on the same page this morning. Here's what happens in the book of Ruth. In the book of Ruth, we are introduced to these characters in this true story as a famine hits the land of Israel. This is where God's people are dwelling. A famine hits the land. Most of the people we find stay there, trusting in God, even in the midst of difficult circumstances, but not Ruth's family. In fact, what ends up happening is that this, there's this man who's living in Bethlehem in the, with the people of God named Elimelech, and him and his wife, Naomi, go to Moab with their two sons. Now, now, not only do they go to Moab, sort of uh, not believing that God is going to come through for his people, but they go to Moab and they eventually do what God forbid his people to do. They get married to Moabite women. God had told his people, hey, listen, I, God so loved the world. He told Abraham from the very beginning, I have a heart for the nations. But he said, listen, if you, if you go after and if you marry with nations that do not serve the one true God, then they're, they're going to turn your heart away from the Lord. And we see that over and over and over again. Be careful who you form intimate relationships with, because if they're not going in the same direction, they're going to take you in a different direction. That'll preach, but that's a separate sermon for a separate day. The sons eventually get married to Moabite women named Orpah and our hero, our human hero of the story, Ruth. Elimelech, the father of this family, dies, and now Naomi is left a widow. This would have been sad. This would have been tragic, but it gets worse. See, both of the sons end up dying as well. And now it's not just Naomi, but also Orpah and Ruth that are widows as well. This would have been the introduction to a tragedy. 
The reader is supposed to feel the tragic, heartbreaking nature of this story. See, we read it and probably at first glance, you're like, oh man, that's a bummer. Everyone's dying. But in the ancient world, it would have been uniquely visceral because in the ancient world, to be a widow is essentially you are relegated to a life of perpetual poverty with almost no hope, especially if you're an older widow like Naomi. No hopes of remarriage. And so we're sitting in this story of tragedy. Naomi is heartbroken. Her husband and her sons have died. She's left alone. And she essentially tells these women as she's living there in Moab, hey, just, just go back to your home. Go back with your people. I'm going to go back to the land of Israel. Apparently Orpah's like, yeah, that sounds good. And she pieces out. But Ruth is of a different cloth. Ruth is of a different character. Ruth has this famous moment in the story where she tells Naomi, Naomi, I'm not going anywhere. I'm sticking with you. Your people are going to be my people. And then something spiritual happens. And she says, and your God is going to be my God. She has this moment of heart transformation. And so sure enough, Naomi, these two widows, Naomi and Ruth, one young and one old, they travel back to Bethlehem. But the ancient reader would have known this isn't just some feel-good story. This is going to be a struggle. This is going to be a life of hardship that these women are walking into. In fact, at the, as they finally make it back into her homeland, you could see the emotion welling up inside of Naomi as she turns to Ruth and she says, Listen, when we get back to my homeland, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. That word literally means bitter. She says, Call me Mara because life, because God, because everything has been bitter. We find that Ruth is, is a hardworking and industrious woman. The only way that, that, that they would have been able to fend for themselves is because God had made provision for widows. God had made provision for orphans because God loves the poor and God loves humanity. And so God had said, listen, when you're out in the fields, you, you need to leave sections for the poor. And so Ruth is out there and she's literally, I mean, manual labor out there sweating, gathering grain and, and providing for her and Naomi. And she ends up catching somebody's eye, a man named Boaz. Now, this man, Boaz, we find is a wealthy landowner, and we find later in the story, he just happens to be a relative of Naomi. Boaz is a virtuous man. He's a godly man. He hears somehow through the grapevine of what has happened with Naomi. He hears Ruth's story, and his heart is moved with compassion. He's inspired by her, her grit and her character and determination. And so he begins to look out for her. He begins to care for her. He tells her men to protect her, and ultimately, he falls in love. Everybody say, aww. And at the very end of the story, Boaz, in this big bow jest, incredible gesture, ends up marrying Ruth, adopting Naomi into the family. They get a heritage and they live happily ever after. Disney, eat your heart out. Welcome to the book of Ruth. It sounds great and amazing. But as we dive deeper into the story, it really begs a question, why does God inspire Matthew to include Ruth specifically and explicitly in the genealogy of the Messiah? Why is she one of these mothers of the Messiah? Because at first glance, if you dig into the subtext, Ruth's story is one of pain, heartbreak, and trauma. We can get to the end of the story, because by the way, we know the end of the story and say, what a great story, it's so incredible. But how many of you know somebody else on the outside who's, who's telling you about the end of your story is not feeling all the feelings that you're feeling while you're in the story? So let me help us get in the story. God is trying to show us that he is not afraid of pain and heartbreak. See, there's multiple characters in the story whose names are not haphazard. The two sons of Elimelech and Naomi. You want to try to say that one? Elimelech? 
Right, if you just spit on your TV, you're doing it right, okay? If your screen has saliva on it. In Hebrew, Malone, one of the sons means sickly. Killian, their other son, means strife. So we've got the two sons, sickly and strife, and then Ruth, who ultimately, or Naomi, who ultimately comes Mara, whose name means bitter. We've got sickly, strife, and bitter. You're like, God, this is not exactly the best sales pitch to join your team and join your family. Like if the genealogy is the ancient resume, why in the world would you want to highlight a story like this? This is one of the things I love of the God of the Bible because he needs you to know that he sees your pain. He needs you to know that he is Well, like Jesus, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief and suffering. And he needs you to know what he knows, which is that if you live long enough, this life is going to traumatize you. If you live long enough, you will end up inflicting pain and being stuck in a place of pain, betrayal, disappointment, church hurt, non-church hurt. If you are a human being, you will experience pain, suffering, letdown, and betrayal. And if we're not careful, I know we like these cliches. If we're not careful, though, it does not make us bitter. Better, it makes us Mara. It makes us bitter. And ultimately, only the light of God's redemption can heal the trauma of our pain, brokenness, and bitterness. What we're introduced to in this story is a deeply tragic and painful reality and only the light of God's redemption can heal your pain, brokenness, and bitterness. This is the great news that I'm praying we don't miss and the reminder behind this mother of the Messiah that God is a redeemer and there is no story too broken that he can't redeem. Come on, somebody. God is a redeemer and there is no story too broken that he can't redeem. So let's, amen, amen. So let's look at all the ways God brings about redemption for Ruth. Number one, if you're taking notes, jot this down. Ruth is given a place to belong. Everybody say belong, belong. Belong. We all all know what it feels like to feel like you don't belong. Anybody been in that space before? That awkward moment where you feel like you don't belong. My mom, who is here in the production team with us, praying it up before service, uh, is absolutely amazing at so many things. And she's incredible in so many ways. And I think she, she like prays and she prays more than she talks and she speaks in more tongues than the United Nations and she hovers and floats when she walks. I mean, she's incredible. But my mom is not she is not the most technologically uh, gifted individual. I remember sending my mom, my, my mom actually uh, is also a widow. And, uh, and so I remember working with my mom on, on you know, feeling like the, the tech support, cause that's now you know, part of another hat I wear. And, uh, and, and I was like, hey mom, you just gotta go to the AT&T store. They're gonna help you out with that. And she came back so frazzled, mom, you remember this. And we're standing in this room. And I was like, mom, how'd it go? And she's like, listen, I don't know what a gigabyte is. I don't know what a megabyte is. I know what an Amorite is. I know what a Jebusite is. I don't know what a gigabyte and a megabyte and all the bytes. She said, John, son, I am not made for this world. I was like, that is true, but we'll help you out, mom. And, and I remember, but we've all felt it, right? It's kind of a humorous wrong, but a humorous example, but we've all felt the realities of a feeling like you don't belong, a feeling like you don't fit in. Now, again, I know we know the end of how the story turns out, but put yourself in the story, in the emotions of Ruth and Naomi. Here's Ruth, and she's about to go back. She is a Moabite. She's about to go back to Israel with an elderly widow to a foreign land 
that she does not know, to a foreign culture that she does not know, into a foreign religion that she does not know. And she's about to go into a place with every single emotion leading her to say, Ruth, are you crazy? You've got a whole life ahead of you. See, we all know what it's like to be afraid that you're not going to fit in. You better believe Ruth is wrestling with these emotions. And yet look what happens. In Ruth 1, verse 16, Ruth replies in this famous moment to Naomi, don't urge me, Naomi, to leave you or turn back from you. For where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. And your people will be my people and your God will be my God. See, it's this, rela it's this relationship with God that unlocks the belonging that is the longing of every single human soul. She says, your God is gonna be my God and where you die, I will die and there I'll be buried and may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. And when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her to stay. Ruth believes and she gets grafted in. Ruth believes and she becomes a part of the family. Ruth believes and she finds a place of belonging, not only in the people of God, but God in his sovereignty makes sure she gets a place explicitly in the genealogy of the Messiah. See, it's not just five women that happen to get in this genealogy. These mothers of the Messiah, Ruth is a Moabitess. Ruth is an individual that should have been an outsider and definitely shouldn't have made it into the story. Why? Because God is a God of redemption, because God is a God that longs to welcome people into his family if they have the humility and the courage to just say yes. Ruth says yes to God, check this. So God emphatically and for all eternity says yes to Ruth. Yeah. See, in the ancient world, there was a penchant that exists very much still today for elitism, for this ostracizing of the other. It was running rampant in the ancient world, even though God had expressed his heart that Abraham would be a blessing to all the nations. And so God makes sure that this Gentile, pagan, Moabite woman named Ruth is adopted in and not only adopted into the family, but explicitly listed in the genealogy of the Messiah. You're like, John, okay, what does that mean? It means God is trying to speak to you. It means that God is trying to reassure you in resounding measure that no matter your past and no matter your background and no matter your history and no matter the skeletons in your closet, if you just have the willingness and humility to turn to him, there is a space for you in the family. There is a destiny and a hope and a future. The place of belonging that you have been looking for and longing for your entire life is found in him. That's what the Ruth story is all about but it keeps getting better. See, through God's redemption power, Ruth is given a place to belong, but she is also given provision. I mentioned this guy, Boaz. He's one of the other characters we pick up in the story. Boaz, this wealthy landowner, had heard of Ruth's story and, and sort of moved by the way that she had loved her mother-in-law, Naomi, and gone all, I mean, left her homeland and left everything she knew and left everything familiar. He's moved with compassion. He begins to look out for her and help her out. And, and this is what it says here in Ruth chapter two. It says, Boaz replied, speaking to Ruth, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law. Since the death of your husband, how you left your father and your mother and your homeland, and you came to live with a people you did not know before. He says, may the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Yeah. Boaz so moved 
by her act of compassion and selflessness, utters a blessing impromptu over Ruth's life. He says, may God cover you. May God provide for you. May God protect you. And he sure does. See, God had commanded his people to care for and look out for the poor. He had said, leave the gleanings of your harvest, which represented wealth in an ancient agrarian society. He said, leave the gleanings of your harvest for the poor. And, and we find out later, as, as Ruth tells Naomi, man, I, I was in this field and this, this guy Boaz, apparently, he said, they're going to look out for me and protect me. And, and Naomi says to Ruth, you stay there because maybe if you stay in his field, no one will harm you. Apparently that was a thing, even in this sector where God had commanded his people to look out for the poor, women that were out in this position would be in danger. So God stirs Boaz, who commands his men, this, this is so good, he commands his men not only to look out for and protect Ruth, but to provide for her as well. Verse 15, as Ruth got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. He said, hey, let her gather among the sheaves, this is not just the corners anymore. He said, Man, let her go in among the good stuff, the, the, the prime real estate grain, and let her gather even from there. Don't reprimand her. Actually, pull out some of the stocks from the bundles. He's like, give her some of the best stuff. Give her some of the prime stuff and, and just kind of leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. Here's the irony. God, Boaz says, man, may God provide for you. You're like, well, well, God didn't provide for her. Y yes, he did. He used a dude named Boaz. Some of you were like, God, I need you to come through can I appeal to you to maybe broaden your lenses of the way God might be doing that even right now? Right. See, the story continues to, to move into an amazing direction, but the reminder here is that God is Jireh. He's Yahweh Jireh. He's God, the provider. And there is greed and there is materialism and we need to be on guard against that. But at the end of the day, the reminder in this segment of the story and the reason that Ruth is in this genealogy is because we are reminded of God as provider. Eye has not seen nor ear has heard what God has in store for those who love him. Jesus says, look at the birds of the air and, and the flowers of the field. Look how much I take care of those things. How much more will I take care of you who I love? See, God is a redeemer and there is no story too broken that he can't redeem. Through God's redeeming power, Ruth is given a place to belong. She's given provision. And finally, she is even given an inheritance. Everybody say inheritance. How many of y'all would like an inheritance? You're like, that sounds good. Housing prices, God knows, are going out of control. Lord, help. See, in ancient Israel, every family was given land. This is in the biblical account in the Old Testament. Every family was given land as God moves his people into the promised land. And, and land was precious. Land was sort of the generational wealth you could pass on throughout your lineage. But if you lost the land, then, then you, there was even remedies and, and ways that God had for his people to get it back. See, we need to understand in the story that Naomi's family, Naomi and her husband Elimelech, had left voluntarily, which meant their land was up for grabs. Naomi and her family, they, you know, they were sort of, uh, there was a famine in the land of Israel. And so they essentially ended up betting against God saying, man, listen, everybody, there's a bunch of people are going to die. We're going to go to another land. We're going to trust another place. We're going to trust another situation. And then when, when horrible things come back, we'll come back and get our land and then some, but God provided for his people. And so they came back. Most Bible scholars, historians believe that what had happened is that there is likely someone else now living in and owning their land. Not only are they widows, they are now disenfranchised of their own decision and situation. So enters this idea 
of the kinsman redeemer. If you, how many of you have read this story before? Show of hands. Okay, I can't see him, but probably some of you. Uh, in the story, there's this thing called the kinsman redeemer. Now, this is the thing that God had commanded his people as a way to sort of enact justice because God cares deeply for justice, that things are right, equitable, and just. And so the idea was this, that there was someone in the family designated the kinsman redeemer. And if for whatever reason, like in this situation, you had lost ownership of your land, the kinsman redeemer, if he was generous, had the right legally and biblically to buy it back. Whoever was owning the land, whoever was living in the land at the time had to sell. They were legally required to sell. If the kinsman redeemer was generous enough to buy it back, he would then own it, allow his relatives to come back on it, and it would stay within the family lineage. You guys tracking with me? Does that make sense here? Okay, so this was the situation. Um, the problem was that if you were to step in as a kinsman redeemer, you now had responsibility for not just the land that you reclaimed, but all of the relatives as well, which means you are now um, the, the, the beneficiary and you are now having to care for, you were the steward over Ruth, the, the widow Moabitess, and her mother Naomi which might not seem that bad, except you're not an ancient world individual. See, in the ancient world, they had a very karmatic way of thinking. Even amongst the people of God, we see it in the Gospels where, where they said that someone was sick and they were like, okay, Jesus, who, who caused this? Was it that person or was it their parents' sins? There was this way of thinking that if tragedy struck a family, especially when we're talking about a father and two sons all dying, right? That's tragic to the max degree. If something like that happened, they would be thinking, man, there's some, there's some bad mojo on this family. There's some bad juju on this family. There's, some bad, there's something here. I don't want anything to do with it. But guess who just happens to be the relative, and not just the relative, but the kinsman redeemer of Naomi's family? Boaz, the wealthy landowner that already God had inclined his heart to look with compassion and generosity towards Ruth. We find that he's not just a relative, but he happens to be the kinsman redeemer. Can you believe it? It's almost like God is sovereign over everything and has a plan for her good. Go figure. Friends, there is no situation out of God's reach. There is no problem that he does not see that is not within his control, that he cannot intervene. And he loves you. And he can redeem it all. I don't know what moment you're walking through. I don't know what hell you've experienced. I don't know what heartbreak has held in this pandemic season. I just know I've seen it over and over and over in my own life through my own father's tragic and unexpected passing. I have lived some grief in this season, trust me. But God is so good, so faithful, so loving, so competent that there's no brokenness too great that he can't redeem. See, now we step into the drama of the story because we find out that Boaz is the kinsman redeemer, but he's not the first kinsman redeemer. There was like levels to this thing, you know, in case someone passed or didn't want to. And so the first kinsman redeemer, Boaz goes to him in this moment of high drama in the story. This is in the book of Ruth. You should read it. Um, and he comes to him and he's like, hey, listen, you know, Ruth and Naomi and they, and they got this land and whatever. Do you want to buy it back? And the first kinsman redeemer is like, uh, heaven, yes, I would like more land. It's like basically, hey, do you want to scale up your business at a very low price? You're like, yes, I want to do that. And Boaz is like, okay, great. No problem. Here's the thing. You also get with the land, the widow Moabitess and her older widow mom. And he's like, um, 
actually, I just want to bless you, Boaz. I think that you, you're in line, right? I, I just want to bless you with this opportunity to scale up your agricultural enterprise. I, I think you should. He doesn't want anything to do with it because of the karmatic line of thinking. He's like, nah, I, don't, I don't want to touch it. And so Boaz ends up getting this opportunity. He redeems, this is the word, the kinsman redeemer would redeem. He redeems Ruth and Naomi and the land. He marries her and they celebrate with fireworks and falafel at the Disney castle. Come on, God. Come on. Fireworks and falafel. The question is, why would Boaz do this? We know already that, that he feels compassionate care for her. We know already that he tells his men to, to protect her and to provide for her. But marrying her takes a whole nother level of involvement in the story, right? Why would he do this? See, this redemption story, it gets even better. It's a love story deeper than you would ever get on the first, second, or even third read. Because if we look back at God's resume here in Matthew 1, we see within the genealogy, if you're tracking with me and remember from last week, that, that in the genealogy, Boaz is a son of who? Rahab. Remember from last week, Rahab is a former Gentile pagan prostitute who was living in the town of Jericho that ended up rescuing and saving the spies and ends up becoming a part of the people of God. See, Boaz uniquely and viscerally knew what it was like to feel like an outsider. Boaz was the son of a widow. Boaz most likely would have been an orphan functionally. And Boaz, in his narrative and in his story, had experienced pain, heartbreak, and ostracization himself. And then Boaz was redeemed. Then Boaz was welcomed into the family of God. Check this. And now Boaz is doing for someone else, namely Ruth and Naomi, exactly what God and the people of God did for him. For him. Like this redemption story, when you start thinking about this, it's like pff, matrix mind explosion. You're like, wait, wait a second. So God, like God has set up this divine redemption rescue mission for Ruth long before she was ever born or even thought of. Here's the moral of the story, friends. Some of you, you've been rescued by Jesus. Maybe it's happened this week, this month, this year, and this season. Maybe it's been a little while or a long while, and it's amazing, and it's incredible, and you're like, oh my gosh, God's real. Yes, he loves me. Yes, this is incredible. But I need you to know, not only is your story just getting started, because he does keep getting better. We sing that song sometimes. It's so true. But your, your redemption story, it's not just about you. God actually wants to use you to bring about redemption in other people. God redeems Rahab, who has a son named Boaz, who becomes the redeemer of Ruth, who becomes the father of King David, who becomes the line of Messiah Jesus. I want my life to matter. You want to talk about a life mattering? Put your life in the hands of God and watch what he can do as a fly attacks me. <laughs> We get the honor of being used in other people's redemption stories as well. Why is Ruth in this genealogy? Because Ruth's story is not just about Ruth. It's our story. It's our narrative. It's, it's our reality. Man, I've experienced pain and brokenness and loss and tragedy. Pastor John, are you telling me that God sees all that? I am. Are you telling me that God cares? He does. Are you telling me that God can actually do something with that to bring about hope and flourishing for other people? You just heard it. And ultimately, it's pointing to something even bigger. Because Ruth isn't just about Ruth, and it's not just about finding ourselves in the narratives of Scripture to know that if God did it for them, he could do it for us. See, just like Ruth, who 
left her homeland and gave up her life so that Naomi could find renewed life and hope again. God so loved the world that he sent his son Jesus And Jesus left his homeland in heaven and came down to earth and he gave his life to cover our sin and our shame. And through his love, he offers us hope again and a new life with him. I'm going to close it in just a second here. It's supposed to point us to the hope that we have in the gospel. It's supposed to point us to the hope that we have in Jesus. It's supposed to point us to Ruth so loved Naomi that he get, she gave her life and God so loved the world that he sent his son. And God is such a redeemer that there is no story too broken that he can't redeem. I don't know what your pain is. I don't know what your heartbreak has been in this season. I don't know what tragedy has struck in your family, in your career, in your life. Here's what I feel so com- to remind you of this morning. God can redeem. You're like, John, but you don't understand. I might not, but he does. And his track record in the ancient narratives and all throughout the story, I mean, here's what Greenhouse is. This is a bunch of messed up people with, with jacked up pasts who've made all sorts of mistakes and we've had tragedy self-inflicted and we've had tragedy others inflicted that we brought our brokenness to Jesus and said, God, if you could do something with this, here's my life, it's yours. And he continues to wow us and stun us again and again and again. He is a redeemer and there is no story too broken, friends, that he can't redeem. And for any who are willing, he offers redemption power, forgiveness and freedom and protection and provision and right standing with God if we would only turn to him in humility and faith. Why don't we pray together? Jesus, you're incredible. And through this mother of the Messiah, Ruth, you are reminding us of your redemption power that through pain and suffering and trauma and heartbreak, you see it all. In fact, Jesus, we see the heart of God revealed and that you wept when one of your friends died. Thank you, God, that you are not aloof from our pain and suffering. You don't distance yourself from us, but you come near. Lord, even right now in this moment, wherever someone is watching and on their phone or on the TV or wherever it might be later on demand, Lord, would you step in by your spirit? I want to give you a moment here to respond in the quiet and privacy of your own home or wherever you're watching from. If, if you sense God stirring your heart, it's because he's real and he loves you. And if you'd like to respond to the incredible redeeming love of God, the incredible redemption power of God's love, I want to give you an opportunity right now, wherever you're watching from, you can, you can honestly just look up to heaven if that helps you and say, God, I'm here. You got me. Help me. My life is yours. I put it in your hands. If you can indeed do something with the mess that it is or the mess that it's become, I've tried to do things on my own. It's not working anymore. At this point, I've kind of realized I need something. Jesus, if it's you, you got me. Help me. Forgive me. Heal me. Place your life in his hands. You're like, I don't even really fully know what that means, but I want to do it. I'm, I'm, I'm in, Pastor John. we got people right there in the chat. You can request prayer right there on whatever platform you're watching from. We'll be back Christmas Eve, Eve, December 23rd at Western High School. You can show up in person and say, hey, I, I watched the service. God moved in my heart. I don't know what I'm supposed to do, but I'm here. Talk with me. We'd love to talk with you, pray with you. We'll set up a coffee. We'll set up a lunch. Whatever it takes, we exist to help ordinary, ordinary people like you and I learn to follow Jesus and flourish and thrive in the ways that he's always intended for us. Maybe you're here and 
and you resonate with the story of Boaz, this man who experienced God's redemption and love, now being used as a redeemer in other people's lives, if you would like God to use you to help bring redemption and hope in someone else's life, you can look to heaven and say, God, use me. God, use me. I see the brokenness in our world. I see people who are hurting. I don't want to just sit by in self-preservation and distance myself from the problem. God, you so love the world that you gave, that you went, that you came, and I want to do the same. Listen, there's, there's four days left, friend, until this Christmas Eve Eve service on the 23rd at Western. Studies already tell us, especially in this season, what we've always known, which is that people are curious, they are spiritually open, they would like to have some sort of a connection with spirituality and faith in the divine, especially if it's genuine, if it's not weird and like salesman-y, but it's genuine and from the heart, especially with someone they trust. And they would probably go and check something out if someone cared enough to invite them. Let that be you. You got four days. We've got digital invite cards. I think there'll be a link somewhere in the description box or in the chat or somewhere like that. Grab one of these digital invite cards. I'm, I'm talking like today. If you're watching with your microchurch, if you're watching online with a group of people, as soon as we're done here in just a second, take some time and, and, and pray a little bit. Say, God, this isn't because I'm better than anybody. This isn't because I have it all together. It's because my life was a mess and Jesus came in and he's beginning to change my life. And I have hope that I didn't have before and I have joy that I didn't have before. My life is changing and I care about people in my life. I care about my coworkers. I care about my family. I care about my neighbors. I'd like to give them a shot to experience God's love like I'm beginning to experience now. I'd encourage you before the moment passes and you just move on to life and life gets busy. It's the holiday season. I get it, it's crazy. Pray about it when you're with some people right after this and text that digital invite card today. Text it today. Overwhelming majority of people, especially around a Christmas Eve time frame where you, everybody's thinking about Jesus. You got baby Jesus on everybody's lawn, right? You're like, people overwhelmingly say, you know what, I, I'd be open to checking something out if someone that I know and trusted invited me. Let that be you. Church, I'm praying God would bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you, lift up his countenance upon you, and give you shalom, shalom, perfect peace. In Jesus' name, God bless you, church, and we'll see you Thursday, the 23rd, at Western High School and right here online. Love you, church. God bless you. See you then.